Well, let's uh, take a look at our notes. We're looking at chapter 3. Chapter 3. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you this evening for our time together as we continue to look at the book of Philippians. We pray that you will grant us grace and the Spirit of God will work in our hearts and minds that we might be able to understand, comprehend, and to apply these truths that we see here to our own lives, our own service for Christ, that we might be more useful, more helpful, we might be more obedient Christians. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, we're coming to chapter 3 here, and uh, we have been dealing, uh, you know, primarily with Paul reporting to the Philippians. It's, it's a letter. Remember, this is a letter. There's a lot of debate about experts who study this thing, debate about what kind of letter it is. The reason they said it is because we've got tens of thousands of letters from that period. And they, they study these letters and they put them into various styles and types and so forth. And, and one of the letters that's, that's, that people often wrote was called friendship letters. And people think that, remember I talked about this, that Philippians kind of looks like a, a letter that you write to a person thanking them for certain things. And Paul has a lot of that in there, especially when we get to chapter 4. He's already mentioned it in chapter 1 where he talks about uh, he thanks them for their partnership in the gospel, you know, and so forth. And then in chapter 4, he actually mentions the gift, the monet- you know, the actual gift and so forth bought, brought by Epaphroditus. But Paul is basically catching them up up to this point catching them up on his situation. Remember, he founded the church on his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 16. Well, what date was that? That was about A.D. 51, 50, 51, when he founded the church. It's, I don't know if you know those dates much, but Christ died about A.D. 30, we think. Paul was saved, 32, 33. Paul, uh, when we come to Acts 13... Uh, we're about A.D. 46. Paul went on his first missionary journey from 46 to 49. Acts 15 is Jerusalem Council is 49. He goes on the second missionary journey, Acts 15, Acts 16. That's about 40. Uh, that's about 51. So, so he established the church is established, and now we're about 10 years later. Paul has had a third missionary journey, and then after the third missionary journey, he he goes to Jerusalem. He's arrested there taken to Caesarea. He's in prison for two years. Then he appeals to Caesar. He comes to Rome. Through the, he has a shipwreck. He's, his, his ship is, is, is destroyed. He lands on the island of Malta, gets another ship, comes to Rome. He's under guard and so forth. He's under house arrest. This is Acts 28, and we're about 62 now maybe, A.D. 62. So this is a, you know, 10 years, 11 years after the founding of the church. And the church at Philippi was very close to Paul, we know, and they were concerned about him. They have sent this man, Epaphroditus, to Rome <clears throat> to, to help with Paul, to serve him, to be of any service he can be, and so forth. Unfortunately, he got ill and sick, and Paul's going to send him back now. And uh, eventually he's going to send Timothy, and eventually he wants to come himself. So He's been giving them an update, and through that update, he's been talking about some issues that he knows that are problems at Philippi, and uh, 
he's, we said one of the issues is, of course, there seems to be maybe a little lack of unity there, and so he's talking about the need for humility and so forth, getting along with other people and so on. Well, when it comes to chapter 3, you notice this title, Warning Against False Teachers. Paul begins to talk about a problem at, at uh, Philippi that uh, deals with false teachers. And this may seem a little strange. Actually, I say here, uh, um, the subtitle is Judaizers as the Context for Theology. I'll explain that in a moment. I say Paul often gives expression to his theology in response to false teaching. The main opposition Paul faced in his ministry was from various Judaizing groups. Arguments against these groups can be found in many of Paul's epistles, so it's no surprise that we should find Paul taking them on here. Yeah, it's, it's no surprise maybe, but <clears throat> people who have studied this epistle for a long time find what's going on here in chapter 3 a little odd, a little strange. Now the NIV has kind of helped solve that a little bit because they begin chapter 3, verse 1, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord, and so forth and so on. And then in chapter 2, he says, verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Well, he uses this word, actually, you know, the King James will translate it finally and so forth. Uh, Sometimes when that word is used, sometimes it means we've come to the end of the the letter, but Paul goes on through chapter 3 and chapter 4. It doesn't always mean that. But it, what seems a little strange is all of a sudden, it's almost like we come out of nowhere, we got this false teachers kind of thing. Where did that come from? We haven't heard anything about that at this point. Um, and we start talking about these Judaizers. Um, people have suggested various things. We just don't know. I mean, this is a kind of a... Some of Paul's letters are pretty long. Romans, remember we said the the letters are in our Bible, not by when they were written, but by the length. Romans is the longest, and that's first. You know, it's doubtful that was written in one setting. That's a pretty long letter to write just at one setting. And so, you know, it could be. Uh, we don't. Nobody writes letters anymore, do they? But when people used to write letters, they would write the first part of the letter, then they may do something else and come back and write the last part and so forth like that. Uh, many people think that that Paul had written the first part of the letter and then uh, he either gets news or there's some, he is uh, rem- he's remembering or somehow this thing about the false teachers comes to his, comes to his mind, he's informed about it. We don't, these are all guesses, but we're just trying to figure out where these false teachers come in. The reason I say that is because we call this warning against false teachers, Judaizers is the context for theology. We're talking here about uh, people called Judaizers. And we've mentioned those people before. They come up in the very first epistle Paul wrote. Remember we said the epistles in the New Testament are there by length. The first epistle Paul wrote in his lifetime, well not maybe his lifetime, but the first one in the Bible that he wrote is Galatians. And Galatians, if you studied anything about that, you know, the big word that's used there is Judaizers. And who were these Judaizers? Judaizers were professing Christians who believed that Christians had to 
uh, continue with Judaism, that there had to be a, a continuation between Judaism and Christianity, that there wasn't this break with the law, that Christians had to keep up what the law taught also. And remember, under the Old Covenant, uh, Jews, males had to be circumcised and uh, that to become part of the covenant community and so forth, going back to Abraham. You remember Abraham, God had Abraham circumcised, and then from then on, males were circumcised, and that marked you out as part of the Jewish community. Well, remember in the book of Galatians, Paul says there that there were false teachers who had come into Galatia, which was the first area Paul went on his first missionary journey. It's in, the, it's in modern Turkey today. And uh, when Paul went into that area, he was, he was hounded by these, these Judaizers. And he's writing back to the Galatian Christians, warning them about the Judaizers. And he just attacks them right in the very first chapter of Galatians. He doesn't wait to the second chapter or the third. It's all about, Galatians is all about these false teachers. I mean, he gets to some practical stuff when he gets to chapter 5 and so forth and 6. But, but the first few chapters of Galatians are all about these false teachers. Now, these Judaizers, as I say, taught, uh, these, were, these were Jewish Christians. These were Jewish Christians who believed that, yes, Christ was the Messiah. So they're not like Jews today. Jews today reject Jesus as the Messiah. They reject the New Testament. They, they say, we're wrong, you know. But these were Jews who uh, accepted, yes, Jesus was the Messiah and so forth, but we still have to continue our Judaism. And so they said, uh, Paul... Uh, is going out to these Gentiles who are living in the central area of Turkey. These are Gentiles. They've got to be taught Jewish ways and Jewish practices. So they've got to, males have to be circumcised, and you've got to keep the law. So those are the two things Paul mentions in in the book of Galatians, that these false teachers are teaching you have to be circumcised and keep the law if you want to be saved. And Paul is very adamant against that. He says that's heresy, that's false teaching, because that's adding works to salvation. That, if, you, if you say that you've got to keep the law in order to be saved, that's adding human works. We believe that a person is saved or justified by faith in Christ apart from works. We believe that works will follow as a result, but they're not part of the, of the faith experience. So... In, in the book of Galatians, Paul is attacking these Judaizers. He pronounces an anathema on them. He says, anybody who teaches this should be eternally condemned. He's very strong in this kind of thing. Well, it's not surprising. These Judaizers followed Paul wherever he went. We know on the second missionary journey, he left Philippi. He went to Thessalonica. He got into trouble. He went into Berea. He had trouble with them there. So wherever he went, there were these people who who said they believed in Jesus the Messiah, but they said, no, Paul is wrong. Paul is wrong. You've got to keep the law and be circumcised, you Gentiles, if you want to be saved. And Paul says, no, that's a false gospel, and that's adding to the truth, and so that's wrong. So when I said here, uh, uh, arguments against these groups can be found in many of Paul's epistles, particularly Galatians, so it's no surprise we should find Paul taking them on here. 
It's not a total surprise. Uh, they were all throughout the Roman Empire, these, these Judaizers, people who... And, and, and let's just give them a little sympathy just for a moment here in the sense that this is a tough transition. You're a Jewish person. You grew up a Jew. <clears throat> there's the temple in Jerusalem. You know, there's the Old Testament. You're offering sacrifices, all this. Then the Messiah comes, <clears throat> Jesus and he lives as an observant Jew, doesn't he? He lives as an observant Jew. Well, you know, how does, how does that fit in? You, I think you would it'd be kind of natural to assume we're going to continue this Judaism way, you know. And Judaism was for Jews. It wasn't for Gentiles. They were, they, were gone, they, were, they were hopeless. The only way you could be saved as a Gentile was to become a proselyte, a convert to Judaism. That was how you could be saved. You had to convert to Judaism. There was no, other, there was no salvation outside of Judaism. But now, that's all changed with the coming of Christ and the cross. Now, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's, there's the, the, the body of Christ, and so Jews and Gentiles don't have to observe the law. It's by faith in Christ and all that. That's a big change. So you can see where people, some people would have a tough time with that. But uh, these people are deliberately uh, against Paul, saying he's wrong, and and they say they're right, and Paul says they're preaching a false gospel. So Paul has to warn these Philippians about this, and that's what brings on this warning against false teachers. Now, entitled this, Judaizer is the context for theology in the sense that Paul often gives expression as theology in response to false teaching. In other words, that often happens. Some error arises. If, some, if somebody in this church, God forbid, started teaching something incorrect... It would be an occasion. Let's say there was some person who, who rose up in the church and said, you know, I don't believe Christ is God. I don't believe he's deity. You know, God forbid. That would be an occasion for the leaders of the church to teach the truth about, you know, what the Bible teaches about that and so on. So that's what we're saying. Many times these occasions where false teaching comes out causes Paul to express the truth. And so we get the truth here in this context of this false theology. And so that's what we say about Judaizers as a context for theology. I say here, in verses 2 and 3, he launches an attack on the Judaizers. This leads to an apparent boasting about his spiritual credentials prior to conversion in verses 4 through 6. Let's see how that plays out. <clears throat> so first of all, Paul on the offensive. Paul is now going to attack this false teaching that he has heard has infiltrated the church here to some degree at Philippi. He says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. I say here, as Paul moves towards what remains to be discussed with the Philippians, he says, Further, what, what remains to be discussed, he does not begin with the primary subject matter, but with what Fee, Gordon Fee in his commentary calls its essential theological and experimental framework, rejoice in the Lord. What he's saying is, you remember I said that some people will say joy is the theme of Philippians. He's telling us again here that it's sort of the framework. I said it was, it, it was, it was, it was sort of the mood of, of Philippians is, is joy. It's what kind of ties everything together. And so he repeats that, that he said before, Rejoice in the Lord. And this, the reason he, I think he says that is this is the first 
um, way that false teaching can be sort of uh, combated here. Here's the first antidote. You've got a serious disease here. You've got this false teaching. You need to rejoice in the Lord uh, rather being attracted to these false teachers. These false teachers are coming in. It's easy to be mesmerized by them. They're experts in the Old Testament law. They're telling you all these things. You say, wait, wait a minute. Paul didn't tell us this kind of stuff. Maybe these guys have something here. You know, I, you know, they, they know a lot about all these Old Testament regulations and all that, and they're telling us about the Bible here. And, uh, but Paul is saying there's joy to be found in the Lord, in the gospel that we have, not in observance of the law. He's gonna, we, we'll look at some verses. He talks about observance of the law as kind of a slavery. And it is a slavery. Just think about our religious friends. I don't know if you know anybody who's very religious, who's in a religion, say in a Catholic religion or something, who's very religious. It's kind of a slavery, you know, because everything depends on what they do, doesn't it? It depends on going to the Mass, and it depends on confession, it depends on giving alms. It dep- you know, th- they're, they're responsible for their own situation, aren't they? They're, they're looking to themselves. It's quite a burden. Now, some people don't take this very lightly, but some people take it very seriously, and they're, it, it's very difficult for them. It doesn't really bring joy when you have to say, your future depends upon what you do, your performance. Your, your getting into heaven depends upon how well you do. That, that's not a very joyous kind of thing because we know we're all basically sinful, and we never sort of meet that standard, so it's, it's hard to have any joy when you're thinking about it's it, it's up to me and, and my and my own uh, ability to perform up to a certain standard, I say here next in the next paragraph, the expression the the same things which Paul will now write about refers to what follows in chapter three, which he had previously communicated to the Philippians. So Paul has talked about some of the stuff that he's going to talk about now about these false teachers. Paul probably everywhere he went, he had to warn people that these Judaizers are going to probably follow me. I mean, Paul wasn't there forever. And when he left, other people came in, you know. And so uh, they were susceptible to this thing. And so he issues kind of a mild apology here. He says, I'm kind of going over familiar ground. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Paul feels that he has to safeguard them against false doctrine. So he's, he's saying, I'm just going to go over this same ground again that I've told you about before, but it's necessary because I hear that these false teachers are there and that's always a problem. People can turn away to that. He says in verse 2 now, remember this is <clears throat> his attack on the Judaizers. He says, watch out for those dogs those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. I say the the verses that follow clearly identify these opponents with the Judaizers, those who dogged the trail of the apostle and endeavored to compel Gentile converts to submit to circumcision and other Jewish practices in order to be saved. So Paul warns the Philippians, be on guard against these dangerous opponents. They're going to be around You've got to be watching for them. Now, here's how he describes them, these descriptions or epithets. He calls them dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. 
Now, when we think about the term dog in English, that's generally a pretty insulting kind of term. It's, um, I, mean, I don't know, if we, in, you know how people use that, but it would be a rather insulting, it could be a rather insulting, kind of almost a vulgar kind of term. It's not, remember, it's not quite that same sense in Judaism. Paul is not using vulgar language here. Remember, in Judaism, this was a term commonly used by Jews to refer to Gentiles. Uh, They were considered dogs because they were unclean, because they didn't follow the Jewish food laws. So even someone like Jesus uses the term. So it doesn't have the vulgar quite sense. And uh, remember, Jesus in Mark chapter 7, he's dealing with this woman from Phoenicia, Syrophoenician woman we call her from Syria, from Phoenicia there in Syria, um, still in modern-day Syria. Uh, in fact, I think, I think some of the rebels had captured, you know, those rebels that were fighting against the, the Syrian government had captured a lot of that area up there where Phoenicia is at. But you remember that story about that woman um, Jesus goes to the vicinity of Tyre, Venetia Tyre. He entered a house. Uh, in fact, as soon as he entered, uh, as, as soon as he could, uh, in fact, as soon as, as this woman heard about him, uh, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syria, Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Here's what Jesus says. First, let the children eat all they want he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. <laughs> that sounds kind of harsh. Now what he's saying, you remember in the context, it's a, it's a parable here kind of thing. He's saying that I came to the Jews first. My mission is to the Jews, and so God has, has told me to go to the Jews first, and I can't give it to the dogs, which are the Gentiles. So dog is just a term for Gentiles here, you know, in that sense. It's a term Jews use to refer to Gentiles. It has more of a it, it, is, it is insulting to some degree, but it's more of a religious connotation. I'm just, that's why Jesus... And remember, she says, she doesn't get upset with that. She says, Lord, even dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter, and so forth. So uh, Jesus was simply testing her there with that. But my point in all that is to say that Paul calls them dogs here because he is using their term that they used to describe Gentiles to describe them. Things have changed with the coming of Christ. Now, you know, Paul will often say, we are the true Jews. He'll say like that in Romans, you know, Romans 7, Romans 2. We are the true Israelites now in the spiritual sense. We're the people of God now. Now the Gentiles are the people of God, and the Jews have been set aside in that sense. So that's why he can say these are the the real dogs. These are the real these these people are really the spiritually unclean people, because they're not really true believers. They're not really God's people. So he calls them. It's it's, it's ironic that these Judaizers are dogs and stand outside the blessings of God. The situation has been reversed. Re- reversed. Gentiles who once were outside the blessing of God now are now are the main component of the church, you know, and they are the people of God. He calls them uh, evildoers. I say the, the phrase evildoers does not merely indicate sinners. It is sinners. But the, the word here, evildoers, it's doers of evil. Here Paul surely is meaning to refute the main claims of the Judaizers, which were 
you've got to keep the law. You've got to do good works. You've got to do the law. That was, that was the problem. And we probably should reference here, you know, places like Galatians chapter 3. Uh, let me read some from Galatians here. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says, um, For all who rely on the works of the law... There it is. That's what, that's what these Judaizers were doing. They're relying for their salvation on works of the law, keeping the law. If we keep the law, we will be saved. Now, that's what everybody's relying on who's outside of Christ. Our Catholic friends, our Muslim friends, <laughs> our, our atheists, our people who don't go to church, they're relying, they're saying, if I just live a good life, you know, they're relying on their works to get them to heaven. But Paul says... For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as written, curses everyone who does not continue to, to do everything written in the book of the law. He's saying the problem with, with keeping the law is you have to keep it completely or perfectly. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God. It's not going to happen. No one can keep the law sufficiently to, for, uh, to, uh, to please God. So... He calls them evildoers here, which means doers, workers. It's the word work and so forth. Now, as we said, we're not trying to divorce good works from the Christian. The Christian does good works naturally and is supposed to do good works. But we don't do good works to be saved, to be justified. Remember Paul says, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. God wants us to abound in good works. And remember that famous passage, which puts, this, puts them both side by side, Ephesians chapter 2, remember? Verse 9 says, uh, for by grace, let me read the, uh, uh, verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved... Through faith, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Well, that's exactly the opposite of what the Judaizers were teaching. Not by works, Paul says, so that no one can boast. But he goes on in verse 10, you remember, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So God has saved us for the purpose of doing good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So when we say all this stuff about the Judaizers, we're not saying Christians should not do good works and good works shouldn't follow. We're just saying we don't base our salvation on our ability to do good works and so forth. So He's, 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 he's being pretty blunt here. He calls them dogs. That's ironic because now they're the dogs, these Jews who think they're really God's people. They're not. They're really outside of God's blessings. They're really evildoers. These works that they're doing are not good works. The only, the only works that God looks favorable upon are works done by a regenerate person. Works done in response to faith. Works done by a person who has been born again. Um, the third phrase I say here, mutilators of the flesh, is a scathing description. It's a play on the word, obviously, circumcision. 
so he doesn't use the word circumcision. These people are not really performing circumcision in the sense God wanted it to perform. God, God instituted circumcision as a sacred rite for Jews in the old dispensation, yes. But it's no longer true. Now, now under the new dispensation, there is no rite of circumcision anymore. So these people are just mutilators now. They're not really doing real circumcision. So they don't deserve the right to be called the circumcision. They should be called, Paul says, the mutilation. So Paul is saying these rituals now really contradict the Gospels. They lose their significance. They're, they're really no better than, than pagan practices anymore. They're, they're just pagan practices. They're not from God. God doesn't require it. Um, and so Paul, um, he tackles a lot of this in, in the book of Galatians also. Um, he, he tells the Galatian Christians that, because remember in Galatia, the Judaizers had come in and said, we, you need to be circumcised, you need to keep the law of Moses. And Paul says there in, verse, in Galatians 4, let me read verse 8 and 9 in Galatians 4. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God. That is, these pagans, these people in Galatia, they were slaves to the gods, to the Olympic gods, to the mystery gods. They had to please the gods. They were slaves. They, they did good works. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. Judaism. So Paul says, it's just like you're going back to your old practices. You used to, uh, you used to do obeisance to, to Zeus and to Mars and Apollo, Apollo and so forth, and you made sacrifices. You were just a slave to those kinds of things. And now you've been freed, and now the Judaizers are coming in, and they're trying to put you under the law these are just the same kinds of things now. They're not what God requires now. It's just a kind of a slavery. So um, here Paul is, is taking the Judaizers' greatest source of pride, which is these rituals, and interprets it as clear evidence they don't share among God's people anymore. Verse 3. For it is we who are the circumcision. They're the mutilation. It is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. I say Paul follows the warning of verse 2 with the reason, the four here, here's the reason why the Philippians should heed that warning. Because it is we who are the true circumcision, Circumcision in the Old Testament meant you were in the family of God. You were in the covenant community. But that's not true anymore. So now we Christians who serve God by the Spirit, we're the real people of God now. We're the real true circumcision. And so he's talking here about those who have received what's called in the Old Testament even the circumcision of the heart. Um, um, remember, Paul talks a lot about this in Rome. Well, maybe we shouldn't mention. Remember, the Jews were circumcised in the Old Testament. Males were circumcised. This was an indication that you were part of the covenant community. 
But if you were going to be saved in the Old Testament, how were people saved in the Old Testament? Well, people have been saved. We, let's look at the let's look at the uh, um, the basis of salvation. We might say um, the um, the um, means of salvation. And let's talk about the content of salvation. Let's look at those three concepts. So we're talking about Old Testament salvation versus our salvation today, New Testament salvation. Um, we don't really believe in two ways of salvation. We believe salvation has always been the same way. So the basis of salvation has always been the death of Christ. Now, it's true, Christ didn't actually die you know, until 2,000 years ago. But the point being, remember Paul says, he talks about that. How, how is it that people in the Old Testament could be saved if Christ uh, died after Abraham? I mean, Abraham, was it, how could Abraham be saved if Christ died after Abraham? And Paul says in Romans chapter 3, um, like verse 24, um, and are justified freely by his grace. Maybe I should just go back. Verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, how to be right with God, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This is the righteousness. This righteousness is given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. Remember, we believe that a person who trusts Christ, God imputes to them, counts them as being righteous. That's what's called justification is, is all about. Righteousness is imputed to us, the righteousness of Christ. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There can't be two ways of salvation. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile because all have sinned. Um. And, verse 24, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement 2,000 years ago through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed before unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in, in Jesus. So, in a sense, you could say Abraham lived 2,000 years before Christ, 2166 about. He was saved sort of on credit. God saved Abraham. He was justified, but it was sort of on credit because Christ hadn't actually died for Abraham's sin. But in the mind of God, of course, he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So everybody who's been saved, from Adam, if he was saved, Abraham... David, Moses, they were all saved based on the blood of Christ, the death of Christ. He's the atonement for, this, for their sins. Now, the means of salvation, Paul says, has always been faith. In Romans chapter 4, he goes into a long discussion about Abraham, and he mentions David, and he's trying to say there, after this chapter here, Romans 3, I've been reading out of, that Abraham was saved by faith. It was faith that saved him and so forth. So Jews in the Old Testament were saved by faith. 
the content, that's been a kind of a progressive thing. In other words, as we go through history, we've had a, a progressive unfolding of content. In other words, Abraham didn't probably not, he didn't probably know all that we know about the death of Christ and all those kinds of things. In other words, people in the Old Testament, they knew that there was a coming Messiah. Someone, Genesis 3.15, he was going to bruise Satan's head and so forth. So the revelation as it went on, Isaiah 53, you get more and more revelation, more progress. So they were trusting in the coming one. They had their faith in him. So the content has been progressive until we get now to the cross where it's finally settled. The content is finished. You have to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and so forth. So my point in saying all this is to say that in the Old Testament, these Old Testament saints were in the covenant community by circumcision. That didn't mean they were all really saved. (laughs) They might have been physically circumcised, but God wanted them to be regenerate. And, and that wasn't always true. It's, you know, it's much like people in churches. I mean, you can have churches with people who are truly regenerate and, and not regenerate, obviously. And so God talks about this in many passages. He talks about what's called the circumcision of the heart. That's what we call in the New Testament regeneration, being born again. In the Old Testament, it's called circumcision of the heart. Here's Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul and life. This is mentioned in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. There's a lot of times where God talks about the circumcision of the heart. The circumcision of the heart is uh, what we call regeneration. You're doing something to the heart. Our hearts need to be changed. They're depraved, wicked hearts. So a way of talking about that change is circumcision of the heart. And Paul even talks about that in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11. He says, if I have my verse right, he says, In him were you also circumcision, with the circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ and so forth. So you've you've been circumcised, you Gentiles, but not with the circumcision of the flesh, but of the heart, the circumcision of the heart. And so this is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 2, beginning in about verse 25, he says, or verse 28, let me read verse 20. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written coat. Now, this doesn't really mean I'm a Jew. <laughs> I'm not a Jew. But Paul says, spiritually speaking, I, we're the true Jews. We're the true people of God. We're the true Jews in the sense that we have been spiritually circumcised. We've had the circum... So people who have been saved, who have been born again, they've been, their hearts have been changed. And that's what God wanted for his Old Testament people. So that's what Paul is referring to here when he says, we are the circumcision. We're the true circumcision. We're the persons who have been regenerate and born again. He's doing all this to show them the error of these false teachers. They're coming in and arguing for physical circumcision. That you've already been 
you've got the true circumcision. I say here next, just as Paul characterizes the Judaizing teachers by three terms in the previous verse, so in verse 3, he explains the true circumcision by three descriptive clauses. First, such persons serve by the Spirit of God, not by human traditions or external rites. Now we serve by the Spirit. But the Spirit of God. Don't, second, secondly, it says they boast in Christ Jesus. So our satisfaction comes from recognizing that our hope is in Christ Jesus. We don't boast in our own works, our own efforts. We boast if we boast in the sense of we trust Christ. We boast in Christ. We don't boast about... We, we're, see, they, these Judaizers are coming in and saying, look at us. We're keeping the law. We're doing what God said in the Old Testament and so forth. Um, third, he says, we put no confidence in the flesh. This, this states the negative aspect of the previous, you know, f- flesh refers to what man is outside of Christ. It emphasizes earthly things. We don't put any confidence in the flesh. We don't put any, put, put any confidence in, in physical advantages, in earthly advantages. Um, Paul often uses this term when, he, when he's in controversies with the Judaizers, especially in Romans and Galatians. He, he teaches there that human beings have no grounds for confidence before God at all because uh, we're basically powerless to achieve the righteousness that God wants us to have. We can't put confidence in our physical efforts, our physical advantage. The true believer boasts in Christ, and that removes any grounds of you know, human pride or boasting in that sense. Now, uh, verses 4 through 6, <clears throat> we see this section called mock boasting. Now, Paul is still refuting the Judaizers, but he's going to um, refute them by sort of boasting and a mocking. Mocking means to ridicule. He's, gonna, he's ridiculing their boasting because they come in and say, look who we are, we're these teachers of law, so, 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 so. They're, they're listing out their accomplishments, what they have done, look how we're conforming to this, and so forth. Well, Paul's going to boast about himself here. He's going to list his great accomplishments. But he's doing this not to really boast, but to really to ridicule their kind of boasting. You know, he says, if you're going to talk about boasting, I, man, I can boast even more than you can. It's worthless, as we're going to learn. He says, this is worthless boasting. It doesn't accomplish anything because God doesn't put any confidence. God doesn't put any, any value in these kinds of things. So it's, it's kind of mock boasting. It's not true boasting. Paul is not really boasting. He's just mocking these people or ridiculing them by, by boasting or seeming to boast here because he can put them all to shame. If they want to talk about credentials, he's got credentials even greater than they are. But he's going to say, all these earthly credentials I had, I just had to count them as nothing for Christ, remember? They just, they just didn't save me. None of this stuff would save me. Well, verse 4, he says, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, that is, confidence in the flesh, I have reasons for confidence in physical things. If you look at my resume, you think, you think, these people, look at my resume. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read out my resume here for you a little bit here. If someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. As I say here, verse 4 introduces Paul's boasting in 4b through 6. 
The Judaizers who threatened the Philippian church no doubt appealed to their impressive Jewish credentials in support of their message. So with considerable reluctance here, Paul felt pressure to remind the Philippians that his own background was second to nothing. That is, they were saying this Paul is nothing, but Paul's saying, listen, I've got better credentials than they have, but I don't put my confidence in those credentials. I don't put my confidence in those human accomplishments that I have, you know. Uh, I was right up there, right up there at the highest levels of Judaism, but that didn't save me. That didn't accomplish anything. So if they want to play this game of confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I can play it better than they can. Uh, Paul's credentials are better than they are. But as I say, he'll certainly, he'll he'll shortly tell us that they don't count for anything, spiritually speaking, before God. Verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day, he's listing his credentials here, his resume as a Jew. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. I say here, the apostle now lists seven advantages in which he could boast. The first four were inherited privileges. Circumcised the eighth day, people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews. The last three were his personal achievements in regard to the law of Pharisee, zeal persecuting the truth, righteousness based on the law of faultless. Together they justify the I have more of verse 4. Remember, he says, if someone thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And let me just list off my reasons here. So let's look at these. The first four are, are um, inherited privileges. He says, first of all, circumcise the eighth day. Remember, Jewish males, Jewish boys, babies, were circumcised on the eighth day. Going back to Abraham, beginning, God gave a command to Abraham, and that was followed in the law, was put in the law that Jewish uh, children are circumcised on, that Jewish males are circumcised on the eighth day. So he's, t- he's setting himself off from the pagans. Pagans, Gentiles were not circumcised. I was circumcised. Well, I shouldn't say that. Some pagans did practice. The Jews were not the, were not the only people who practiced circumcision, actually, believe it or not. Some other religions did too. But Paul is saying here, I was circumcised in the way that God said it should be done on the eighth day. So I was following the religious law perfectly here. Then he says, of the people of Israel. So he claims to be of the nation of Israel. That's distinguishing him from proselyte. A proselyte is a convert to Judaism. You could convert to Judaism in the Old Testament. You, as a Gentile, if you were a male, you'd have to be circumcised. You had to follow certain rituals. The the rabbis, uh, it's still true today if you want to convert to, to Judaism, but the rabbis tell us what they had to do. You had to be circumcised. You had to be taught by a religious rabbi or somebody. You had to be baptized. You had to be immersed, I'm sorry. You had to be immersed generally at Jerusalem. Uh, so there were certain requirements that a proselyte had to do. And so there weren't many true proselytes, really, uh, not many adult males are going to submit to circumcision. 
I don't need to go into that. But <laughs> So there weren't many true proselytes, but there were some. There were some people who, who did. Um, so he says, I'm, I'm not a proselyte. I'm of the people of Israel. And then he says, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, remember, there were 12 tribes of Israel, but some of them were not as reputable as other tribes. Some tribes had a pretty negative history. Benjamin was a pretty reputable tribe. Remember that uh, during the time of David and during the time that followed when the kingdom was split, Benjamin stayed true to the Davidic line. They were very faithful. The first uh, king of Israel, Saul, that Paul was named after, Saul, came from the tribe of Benjamin. So he was saying, you know, I'm from one of the well-respected tribes of Israel here. Then he says, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. So I'm, I'm, of the, I'm a zealous Hebrew. <laughs> uh, and and it, it probably means here, it may mean he has no really, he's a pure Hebrew. He's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He has there's no mixed parentage. He is, he's a real, real dyed-in-the-wool, native-born sort of... Uh, remember, in, in, in the New Testament time, there were, there were division among Jews because Jew, Jews were originally confined to the land of Israel and so forth, they, they, and so forth. But then, uh, through the various dispersions that happened, you know, because of the captivities, they were dispersed into Babylon, into Egypt, and they, and you know, remember Paul went on his missionary journeys, he found Jews everywhere. And there were Jews living out in various places where Paul went to Corinth, he goes to Galatia, he finds Jews, he finds Jews everywhere. The Jews, uh, th- those Jews didn't often speak the Hebrew language natively. They didn't really speak Hebrew and Aramaic. We see that in Acts chapter... You remember in Acts chapter 6, there's this conflict that happens in the early church. There's a conflict in the early church between, it says, the Grecians and the Hebrews. Remember the, the wives of the Hebrews and the wives of the... Remember that conflict? Well, that conflict was a conflict that was in Judaism that came into the church. Remember, these are all Jews in this early church. And there was a conflict in Jerusalem between people who had been born out in the provinces, had moved back to Jerusalem, but weren't really native. They didn't really speak Hebrew. They they spoke Greek mainly. There was some conflict between them and the native-born because they didn't speak the language. It was thought they didn't follow the customs. Paul is saying, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm the purest kind. There's no question about me. Um. I'll say here next year, as an adult, Paul continues his, he, as, as, as adult Paul continues, he chooses a religious lifestyle that left no doubt with regards to his commitments. Remember, he says, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, a Pharisee. The particular approach he chose for interpreting the law was as a Pharisee. Now, by the time we get to the time of Jesus, there are various divisions in in Judaism, about uh, they were all Jews, but they were you know we know the Sadducees and the Pharisees. We meet those. Well, these were different ways to interpret the Old Testament law. They had slightly different interpretation. We got we got Presbyterians and Baptists today, don't we? <laughs> we got Baptists and Presbyterians. So we got different ways of interpreting the New Testament. Well, they had different ways. 
Now, these, these, the Sadducees and the Pharisees developed in the 2nd century B.C., around 150 B.C. is when they started. There were other people called Essenes. They were the people of the Dead Sea Scrolls and so forth. So Paul says, I chose the Pharisee. The Pharisees were considered generally to be the people who were the most scrupulous about the Scriptures, who adhered, they were thought to be, people who adhered more closely to the Bible than the Sadducees who were thought to be less uh, compliant and so forth. So he's just telling us, I, you know, I, my pedigree is, is unassailable here. Um, he also tells us in the second place, he proved his sincerity and intensity of his religious commitment by persecuting the church. Uh, remember in Galatians 1.13, he tells us, my goal was to destroy the church. I went out and tried to ki- I kill people. I put people to death because I thought these people are, these were Jewish people, remember, who were heretics. They were leaving the true religion, and I, I went out to kill them. So I was zealous here. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. I say the culmination of Paul's achievements is found in the last phrase, as for the righteousness based on the law, faultless. Well, Paul can hardly be claiming here that he is sinless when he says that. Don't, don't take that to mean, as for the righteousness based on the law, faultless. Uh, this is a concept that is foreign to Jewish religion, even Jewish theology. They don't think they're faultless. And uh, if we read Paul's own testimony sometime, read Romans chapter 7, if you read that, verses 5 through 11, he talks about his own struggles and so forth like that. But if you look at these previous six claims that Paul makes, circumcised the eighth day, eighth day, people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew Hebrews, regard the law of Pharisees, Zeal, Persecution Jews, these are all observable claims. These are verifiable claims. These are things that you can see. You could check the record and find out, yeah, that's true. That's, that's true for Paul. So what, what this thing, when Paul says, as for the righteousness based on the law of faultless, Paul is talking about an outward conformity. He's not talking about an inward heart conformity, but he's saying outwardly. As a religious person, I was basically faultless. No one could point to something in Paul's life where he had violated the Ten Commandments, where he had committed adultery, where he had gone into idolatry. No one one could actually point to Paul's life. He had been outwardly conforming to the law. That doesn't mean inwardly, you know, but I'm just saying outwardly, he had conformed. So it describes an exemplary way of life that's in conformity with the Old Testament as the Pharisees saw it. Paul was faultless in this Pharisaic sense. You know, we think about the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18. He came to Jesus and says, Jesus says, you know, what I do for eternal life will keep the law, you know. And he said, well, I've done it. <laughs> you think a person could say, yeah, yeah, he thought outwardly, he thought, you know, and Jesus says, well, let's get to the heart of the matter here, you know, inwardly and so forth. But Paul is just saying, my resume matches anybody's resume. Well, that leads us to then the essence of Pauline theology, verses 7 through 11. I say in these verses, Paul summarizes the distinctness of his theology. Now, he's doing that in the context of what we've been talking about. Remember we said... Paul often gives us theological truth in the context of refuting, refuting false teaching. I say, as verses 4 through 6 demonstrated, Paul had not been a failure in Judaism. Nevertheless, he came to view his previous successes as spiritual bankruptcy. 
This leads Paul to describe his new theological position in concise statements that are both theological and personal. Paul speaks of justification in verse 9, sanctification, and then ultimately glorification. So what Paul says in verse 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. So I just laid out my resume. It's a tremendous resume. It's as good as anybody's got in Judaism, but it was nothing. It was just loss. And later he calls it dung because what it didn't do, it didn't save me. <laughs> it didn't really give me true righteousness, you know. And so I just had to throw that all away. I just had to say, that's worthless. That's nothing. And so these false teachers who are coming in, <laughs> they're trying to put you under this stuff. Well, I, I, throw, I threw that away because it was worthless and didn't really bring salvation. But we'll have to wait the next time to look at that, uh, verses 3 through 11. We'll see what Paul says. And he has some very helpful theological teaching there as he's telling us the truth about what really does count as far as true righteousness is concerned. All right, let's stop here for tonight, and we'll pick it up here next time. All right?